Good morning, friends. Hey, if you're new to Cornerstone, my name's Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and love to meet you after the service. Just come up front, say hi. It's a heavy time in our community, and so I uh, feel compelled maybe more than today, but for the next few months, to start my messages with some good news, and thank yous for all the neat work that you're doing. Many of you have been incredibly generous over the last couple weeks, and um, we've been able as a church to give out a number of gift cards to people who lost their homes in the fires. We've coordinated with other churches in the community, and uh, we've made sure that the schools that were most effective have been adopted, and we're working through the staffs at those schools to get resources to the families that need them. And in the months to come, we're going to be focusing in on the families that need it the most. But you're making all of that happen. Lunch was brought to Fireside Elementary last week. That's our school we've adopted just to thank the teachers and staff for the hard work they're doing. But I wanted to read you a few thank you notes because I usually get to see these and uh, they should be shared with you, everyone. I wish I could, but I want to share a few of them. One lady says, wow, we can't say thank you enough. uh, Denise brought these incredible, generous gift cards for my kids. Really, we were just speechless for the thoughtful, the thoughtfulness and the generosity of everyone who contributed. Our hearts are full for these huge acts of kindness. We are so grateful and thankful for you. And you know what people continue to say? In addition to getting the gift card, they just feel supported. People are there with them. Another friend of ours said, thank you, thank you so much for the generous gift cards that your church gifted us. We truly appreciate your prayers and support during this time. And I can tell you that person, I'll mention them in a moment, they really do covet your prayers because people who know how prayer works know that it's more than just well wishes, which really doesn't do much except make us feel good, but prayer works. And it holds people up and it allows God to work in their life. And so there are people that are grateful for that. Um, some more good news a couple of weeks ago, uh, right around the time of the fire, we brought and relocated our first Afghan refugee family. We've been tell you, telling you about that. Many of you saw what took place last summer around the world, and we wanted to do something to help. And so a beautiful family of three little beautiful girls are a part of our community now, and uh, many of you have been busy taking care of them. Just amazing things. It doesn't look like a good thing, but this big mess that you experience outside on Sundays... By the way, it was very muddy on Friday here for a funeral. Ladies did not get the notice to not wear heels, and so they're navigating the mud. But we apologize for the inconvenience. But stuff is actually happening, and uh, there are walls up in the basement right now, and we can see what our student space is going to be like. And so it's a small thing, but we're excited after waiting two and a half years that a building is actually going up. And so... Those are good things. You're doing amazing work, Cornerstone, and uh, really, that's the focus of today's message, and I just want to remind you and keep moving you in this direction that God can use your life. God wants to use your life. He can use your life, and if you say yes to him, he will sort out how he does that, and he will use your life when people struggle, and right now, our community is struggling, and I want to tell you a story that places our current struggle into a historical context for Boulder County. Because I would argue that this is our county's toughest moment, or at the very least, a close second. So that other moment happened a long time ago, over 100 years ago. The years were 1893 and 1894. And at that time, Boulder was about 35 years old, and it was now a a growing, well-established little community. We had the university here, so it was a university town. But more than that, it was a town that was supplying the gold and silver mines to the west. And so it was a supply town. Uh, The farms to the east, churches were established downtown, and it was taking on the feel of a legit city. 
And uh, something very difficult happened. Actually, two very difficult things happened 12 months apart. So in 1893, there was a thing called the Silver Scare um, or the Silver Panic. And what happened is the United States moved away from having silver be a part of the standard, okay? So it moved from a silver and gold standard to just a gold standard. And what that did is it plunged the entire country into a small depression, but in communities like ours, connected to silver mines, communities like ours suffered the most. And so Boulder found itself in a very, very dark place. It was good for Boulder that many of the downtown churches that you can see when you drive through town had already been established because they went to work caring for people in the midst of their financial needs and looking for jobs and all of those things. So things were tough. But a year later, on Memorial Day weekend, 1894, it started to rain. And it kept raining. And it kept raining. And terrible floods ensued. And uh, from the, you know, from the west, all the creeks were full. They come into Boulder and Boulder and the towns to the east, El Dorado Springs and Superior and parts of Louisville experienced severe flooding. You can read articles in the Daily Camera about, they, this is what they say over and over again. Every road in the city of Boulder was flooded. Every road. Every rail line in the city of Boulder was flooded. The telegraph lines and the phone lines were all not just a few, all of them completely cut off. The city was isolated. To make matters worse, you know that Boulder is divided by Boulder Creek north to south. Every bridge connecting the north bank to the south bank was destroyed, rail and cart. There are stories of little kids being stranded on the wrong side of the river. And the next day, they rigged up a pulley system between two cottonwood trees on 6th Street, and they were relaying kids and supplies over the raging river. Amazing stories. It was during that time that many of those downtown churches, our only churches in town at the time, really went to work trying to provide hope and organization as people began to care for one another. It's often something that's left out when, when the community is described as coming together. The soul of the community is always the church and working. This is what the Daily Camera said of that moment. One thing is worthy of note. However, this moment has shown the spirit of the people. I have not seen a gruesome face or heard an, an oath or an expression showing the spirit of dejection in the midst of this ruin. We laugh and joke while repairing the waste. So it was a difficult time, but a moment of hope and a moment where the church shined and went to work caring for one another and for the people around him. Now, for obvious reasons, I start with that story because here we are in another very, very difficult moment, perhaps the most difficult and I can tell you that for the last year, as a pastor of this church, I felt very convicted by God to remind all of us over and over again that God has put us together. In a sense, we're a body, we're a team, we're a family. He has put us together for this moment to be faithful to the moment. Have you ever thought of that? For whatever reason, you find yourself in a church in Boulder and you live in Boulder County and you're living through one of the most trying times in this place's history. Why would that be? Except that God might want to use you and us and we together. And so today I want to remind you that God can use your life and he wants to, wants to right now. And that's part of the theme for this series. So let me say a few things about the series that Aaron started last week. The series is called An Ever-Present Help in Times of Trouble or Ever-Present Help. And it comes from Psalm 46, verse 1, where it says, God is our refuge 
and our strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Aaron took us through that entire psalm last week. It was very helpful. And there are two important ideas that we want to communicate over and over again over the next several weeks. First is this. God is an ever-present help in times of trouble. And I hope you've experienced this. I hope you find com- you've found comfort and peace in prayer. The prayer isn't just something that you do to change things in the world, but you actually have learned to notice God's presence and hear his voice. And if that's a new experience for you, if you've never experienced that, we have people here that would love to help you. We love teaching people how to pray to connect with God. God is an ever-present help. He's helpful for our disturbed souls, for our anxious hearts, for our downcast spirits. God is helpful. God will resource us. God will give us wisdom. Right now, many of you are praying that God will help the people in your life who are going through this endless list of tasks as they rebuild their homes. I mean, just the stories I've heard about the number of hours people are spending on the phone with their insurance company. I mean, we all have that experience, right? Being on the phone with a company. Imagine hours, day after day. Jumping on Zoom calls with local HOAs. It's like torture. These poor people. Most of the time, it is not easy. And so we're praying that God would be an ever-present help to them, that he would sustain them, that he would give them rest. It's an important aspect of God helping us and even us being used by God is that we learn to rest in God. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 has a verse that we're gonna hit on in a few weeks, but I'll mention it. Chapter 10, verse 10, it says, if the ax is dull, its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed. This is what it's contained in that. This is what, what it means. There's a time to sharpen your ax and rest instead of to keep swinging harder. And so God gives us rest and he gives us a pace to go at. And he helps sustain us. And so God is an ever-present help in times of trouble. But here's the second idea. God uses you as an ever-present help in times of trouble. The church is lots of things. The church is lots of bad things. But it doesn't change the fact that the church, the body of Jesus, is the manifest presence of God in the world today. When people ask, where is God? The church should be there. You're meant to be an ever-present help in times of trouble. You're meant to be a part of the ministry that God is doing in the world. Every one of you is meant to have a ministry. God is using you. God wants to use you. You are that ever-present help in times of trouble. And, um, you know, I'm I'm purposely using the word ministry today because I want to help redefine it, at least for some people. Many of you hear that word and you think ministry is what people like Brian does. He's a professional pastor. I have been for 20 years. You think ministry is what's happening in the room right now, and it is. But ministry, most of the ministry that God is empowering happens outside of a room like this. It happens in office buildings. It happens at work with coworkers. It happens in homes. It happens in neighborhoods. It happens in schools. Ministry simply is service to God that shows up as love and care for others. That's what ministry is. We love, we respond to God by being the type of people that he uses to care for other people. And so your ministry may look like your job. It can happen during a hobby. It can happen just in relationships in your neighborhood as your kids are out riding bikes. God has given us a number of ministries, not just one ministry, and he's called us to be a part of it. Now, what I want to show you today is some of the simple teaching of Jesus from Matthew chapter 9 and 10, where he helps us understand ministry. So it's really simple. Some of you have heard this before, but it's meant to be a reminder and to help move us 
towards the people in our lives that God wants to use. Ministry, this is what I want to remind you of. Ministry starts with compassion. It's done by ordinary people. And ministry is care for people in a number of different ways, for their mind, their body, and their spirit. So there's a number of different ways that we can care for people. And so if you'd like to follow along, we'll be in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And then we'll continue into the first part of chapter 10. This is what it says. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So a number of things in here that are important to point out, but for today, I want you to focus on the motivation of Jesus for the things that he was doing, but also for the motivation that Jesus would have when he would send out his disciples, because that's what's about to happen next in the passage. All ministry starts with compassion. It starts with love. For God, it starts for love. Love for other people starts with mercy, starts with empathy. How many times over the last two weeks have we said to someone in our life, I can't imagine what that's like? And what we're doing is we're trying to. We're trying to imagine how difficult that would be, what that would feel like. That's empathy. We're trying to put ourselves in those people's shoes and we're asking ourselves, what would be helpful? Over the last two years, as people have isolated and mental illness has increased and relationships have been strained, haven't we watched people around us and responded with compassion? Our hearts hurt for them. We know it's hard. We feel it ourselves, but we have compassion for other people. This is one of the loving responses that comes with following Jesus is you see what's happening to pe- with people around you and you have compassion for them. Now, in Jesus' case, his compassion compelled him to act, and this is one of the things that he's trying to teach his disciples. They're not just those that are suffering, but they're those that Jesus is calling into a bigger story. So you need to know this about first century Israel, and it's easy to look up the history, but this was a terrible place to live, and it was a terrible time to be a human and be alive for most people. So many of you know, if you've read your Bible, that the Romans were ruling Israel at this time. And for the three generations that preceded Jesus, all of his relatives knew only but, they only knew Roman rule, nothing else. Romans had this philosophy called Pax Romana, which was peace through Rome, but ironically, uh, peace was brought with a sword and a spear, and they crushed these nations, and they kept the peace by, uh, and preserved the peace by using fear and, and, oppression. It's terrible. So this is the world Jesus is born into, and his parents and his grandparents and his great-grandparents knew this hopeless life. And one of the reasons that most of Israel found itself in severe poverty, we're told that nine out of ten Jews living during Jesus' time lived at the subsistence level, barely surviving, which meant that if there was a bad harvest or a natural disaster, the family I mean, they were, in a, they were in a tough spot, barely able to survive, just holding on. Most of the Jews at this time had had to sell their land. One of the things that made the Jews special and one of the gifts that God had given them is they each had their own plot of the land so that none of them would be poor. Well, as this serious taxation is taking place and this heavy burden is placed upon them over and over again, they would have to sell their land just to feed their families. 
subjugate themselves to another ruler. A third of that 90% lived at the very bottom of society. So listen, a third of that 90%. So I'm not good at math, but that's somewhere around 25% of the whole population lived at the bottom. My point is poverty was everywhere and it was a degree that we've never experienced, at least in this world, and we'd really have to go to the third world to experience it. Those living at the bottom were shepherds, prostitutes, widows, the disabled, the mentally ill, the chronically sick, those with leprosy, polio. By the way, all people Jesus touched, right? He made a point to get to all of them. Historians also tell us that it was a hopeless people. And part of their narrative is we've been chosen by God. He's blessing us. But look what our plot is. Look what life is like. There is no hope. It's gone on too long. No wonder when Jesus went out and fed people and healed the sick, he also announced the good news and told his disciples to do the same. This is what Jesus was doing. The, you know, he, it says here in the passage that he, told, he was announcing the good news of the kingdom. We'll see it in a moment. But you know what that good news contains? It contains the gospel story. A God who loves us so much that he came to be with us, to die in our place, and to give us his life. That the promise of the gospel and the promise of the kingdom is that all things will be made new. God is the renewing God. He's the reviving God. He's not just the God of second chances. He's the God of an endless number of extra chances. That's what God does. So these are hopeless people, and Jesus said, remind them where hope comes from, and remind them that the kingdom of God is near. So he would do this because they were in this place. So then he takes these disciples, the ones that had lived under this oppression, the ones that had lived with this poverty, this uncertainty, this suffering, and he says, you know what? I want you to have compassion for people the way I do. This is how bad it was in first century Israel. You know, uh, we all are, are, are aware of the crucifixion because Jesus, of course, made it famous. But there were at least two occasions when Jesus was a boy in Nazareth that the Romans crucified hundreds on one moment and another moment. 2,000 Jewish rebels put them up on their crosses, lined the road with them so that people would see them. That's the world that Jesus lived, lived in. That's the world that he ministered in. So no wonder he has compassion for these people that here in the passage we're told are harassed and helpless. Now today, our, we wouldn't describe the world around us necessarily as harassed and helpless, but there are people that are hopeless, displaced, suffering, confused, struggling, ready to give up. He would have compassion, and he would say to us just what he says to his disciples, I know you're part of that. You're in the midst of all that. You're struggling yourself. I'm an ever-present help in times of trouble for you but I also want you to have compassion and act for others. So ministry starts with compassion. His compassion, our compassion. And ministry is done by ordinary people. And I can't make this point strong enough because we live in a world today that says, you know, special people solve the problems or my limited resources, or my failures, or my limited uh, vision keeps me from helping. That's not true. God uses ordinary people. In fact, those are the exact types of people that he prefers to use. So chapter 9, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
You know what Jesus is saying is, there's a lot of people that will sit back and be passive when people are struggling. That will never change, and it hasn't changed. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest fields. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Then verse two, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Now, it's easy to miss the point that these are ordinary men, at least from our perspective in history. We're 2,000 years later. The disciples are famous, right? Who doesn't in the world know about the 12 disciples of Jesus? Half of the names in the Christian world, at least for boys, come from the names of the disciples. There's lots of Johns and Marks and Matthews and James. And a version of that in just all these different nations in their own language. The disciples are certainly famous because of all the things that have taken place from this moment. But remember, the gospel was first recorded before the fame of the disciples had begun to spread throughout the world. And this is why I think the names of the disciples are listed here. I think it mattered to God to communicate to people just like us that these are ordinary people from amongst the crowds. Every one of these disciples before they met Jesus was powerless. They were struggling. They were weak. They were confused. They were hoping. They had to struggle with their, their own hopelessness. But these are ordinary men. You have Matthew who's doing a very ordinary thing. He's trying to just take care of himself. You know, Matthew's job, we're told here, it actually points it out. The details are not unimportant. It says he's a tax collector. If you were a tax collector during this time, you were hated by your own people because you were, coll you were colluding with the enemy. You were helping the Romans keep people down. So in a sense, hate was justified. The tax collectors would collect money from those that didn't have very much, and if they didn't collect taxes from those people, they would turn them in. And being turned in would lead to severe suffering for these people. Matthew is a tax collector. He's ordinary in an evil kind of way. It's nothing special, virtuous about Matthew, yet he's called. And he gives us this version of the story that Luke also tells us. There's Simon the Zealot. It's not like Simon the Passionate. It's not describing his personality. It's a group of people that Simon had associated with before Jesus. The Zealots were a group of freedom fighters. They were a part of Israel's history during this time. And so one of those rebellions that led to those mass crucifixions was, was most likely led by the Zealots. Later on in 70 AD, when civil war broke out in Israel, it wasn't a civil war, it was a revolution trying to overthrow the Romans. It was the Zealots that led that. Simon had said, the way to hope, the way to serve God is this way. Yet Jesus calls him out of it. That's very ordinary, isn't it? To take on that approach, to, to be against. Then you have fishermen, uneducated, blue-collar men. They're not special. You know, one of the reasons they're not in, at their age, working in the temple or the synagogues is because they weren't very smart. 
There was layers of school for Jewish boys, especially during this time. And if you were the smartest and you could memorize scripture and you could interpret the scriptures, you were given extra opportunities to move up among the religious ranks. But these guys all failed at some point and were told, no, you need to go live like the other 90%. They are so ordinary that it screams out. Now, here's why that matters to people like us. Well, first of all, you're not that ordinary. You're much smarter than all the disciples, probably. Much more resourced. You're certainly better looking than all of them. We live in Boulder County. We're much healthier, aren't we? But the truth is, we're all ordinary. And, and, we, and we tell ourselves things all the time that keep us from being used by God. We, we, we let our ordinariness be used as an excuse. We say, what can I do? It's so big. What can I do? I don't know what to do. I don't have what other people have. I don't have the power other people have. And so what it does is it keeps us passive. It keeps us on our back foot and we wait for someone else to do something. But God calls ordinary people. Do you not think that the disciples said all the same things? You're calling me? Isn't there someone better? And in worldly standards, there were many people that were better, but Jesus calls the unlikely. There's an amazing passage in Acts chapter four. Uh, here's the setting. Jesus has died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. But before he did that, he sent his disciples out. He gave them power and said, now it's time to go. So it's another moment that Jesus is sending them out into the world. And... Uh, these disciples who for the weeks before this were hiding in a home. So they're on their back foot. After all, Jesus had been killed. They're being hunted down. But they have this newfound courage and commitment to serve God by loving people. They're captured by their ministry that they're now out putting themselves in danger and a couple of the disciples begin to speak to a crowd and all heaven breaks loose and thousands believe and are baptized. And then it goes on to say this, as people observed the disciples, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Ordinary men. Ordinary women. Ministry starts with compassion. God uses ordinary people. It is significant that the scriptures don't cover up the failures and weaknesses of the disciples. Never are they portrayed as anything but ordinary men, and you can add women to that, who continue to struggle. Instead of whitewashing their blemishes, the scriptures actually highlight them, and they highlight human weakness as to make the point that these are the type of people that God prefers to use. I want you to remember that, that God uses people just like you. Of course, you're ordinary, but you know what? He affirms every part of you, even your broken story. No one believes in you more than he does. No one believes in you more. So ministry starts with compassion. It's done by ordinary people. And the essence of ministry is really simple. We make it complicated, but it's just caring for others at all their different, with all their different needs. So verse 5, chapter 10. 
These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter the town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So he's sending them first to their own people. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, now freely give. Jesus is telling them to do the very thing that he has been modeling for them for, uh, at this point for several months now. And he's not giving them a lot of training. He's just saying, go. The workers are few. It's time to go. And look what he says. He, he, he gives them different instructions that's meeting the needs of different parts of a person. Because Jesus cares about the whole person. One of the sad things that has come out of evangelical Christianity, and I feel like I can say it because it's my stream, it's my tribe, is that we like to say the only thing that matters is the spiritual needs of people. But that's not how Jesus ministered. He fed the sick, or he fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He drove out demons. He touched people mentally, physically, spiritually. He could look at a person and see that there were a number of needs in their life, and he could speak to each of those and bring restoration and renewal and revival to different parts of them that were broken and sick and hurting. And so he tells the disciples to do this very same thing. God sends us out to meet the full needs of people. Now, it's easy in the world we live in to go out and meet physical needs. I'm glad it's easy. I'm glad that we live in a very generous community. I mean, isn't it amazing that the Community Foundation reported last weekend that they had received $18 million in donations? The churches together have collected around a million dollars. And this is just about five or six churches in the area that have collected a number, uh, tons of money to help out. People are generous. And, uh, and we're trying to find the people that are falling through the, the cracks, but gift cards have been plentiful to people. And, and people offering their homes and people making connections so people have a place to stay. People's physical needs are being cared for. The shelters had to turn away donations the first weekend. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that people still aren't in need. But the physical needs of people are being met, and it's amazing. It's a beautiful thing. That's the Jesus way. But it can be a lot harder to try to meet the spiritual and the mental needs of people. But people's minds and hearts and spirits are hurting. This weekend, we were at a, a wrestling match. It's what we do every weekend in our home, in the Carlucci house in the winter. Lots of winds. It was awesome. Every loss was awful. One of the boys on my team lost his home. And uh, the first weekend, we delivered gift cards to their family. I mean, they're receiving stuff from all over the place. It's amazing. And uh, we were speaking with this wrestler's mother, and Elise and I, and we gave her a hug, and we just asked how things were going, and she gave us a report and just shared her gratitude but she looked at us and said, I need you to keep praying for me. Her spirit is tired. Like her heart hurts. Just the day before they went to their house and they found, so they have, she has three sons and they had those things a lot of parents get when, when their kids are born, the footprints of the babies. They found two of the three. 
mean, what a beautiful thing to find, right? So grateful for the two, missing the one. How many times does that happen? She said, I need you to keep praying for me. She's asking for us to care for her spiritually. And here's what happens when you pray. We said this a moment ago. It's not just wishing good things for people. It's asking God to hold them up. It's asking God to give them a little more. It's asking God to give them stamina and wisdom and patience and to help them get through a tough time. Over the last two years, this church has said to me more than any time in the, I could combine the previous 18 years. You have all said to me more in the last two years than the previous 18 years. Brian, I'm praying for you. Because being a pastor the last two years has not been fun. I can tell you it helps. And it doesn't just help to know that someone's thinking of you. It's power released through your prayers into their life. Someday God can explain it to us. I don't know exactly how it works. But I just know what it feels like when someone's praying for you. And so does this mom. We all know how scary mental health is right now in our entire culture. Like you can't open up the newsreel and not find an article about how bad things are going. People are still hurting themselves in an increased way. Young people are doing terrible. Relationships are doing bad. Strange relationships, divorces are up. I mean, it just mentally, it's just taking a toll on people. Your friendship, your prayers, your peaceful presence, perhaps teaching an anxious person how to pray might be the thing that they need to get through the day. You have something to offer. God wants to use your life to care for the person, mind, body, spirit. You know what else this means? It means that you have a message that you get to share. Now, this is the part that's a lot harder for us to have a lead foot, okay? We like meeting people's physical needs, maybe even mental needs, but, and even offer prayer. But the scriptures tell us that our spirit is dead apart from God. The gospel message is a message that's meant to be shared with all people. It's the narrative that frames human joy and suffering in a way that is redemptive. It's the only narrative that can pull people in in their suffering in a redemptive way. Through death comes life. I know, as well as you do, that Christianity has a bad reputation in our culture today, and most people don't come over and say, hey, tell me about Jesus. You probably didn't ask someone to tell you about Jesus, but you're grateful someone did. Listen, God will be, give you wisdom on how to do it in the right way. He will open little doors. They offer to pray for someone or to talk to them about their struggle and the, and the power of God's presence in their life. Those can be all opportunities to be, share the greatest news there is, but we are meant to care for mind, body, and spirit. That's why Jesus didn't, didn't just say, feed them, house them, heal them. He said, announce the good news. Because we need it. And by the way, if you want to be a person that can continue to show up in people's life, you need that connection the gospel provides. So not, as it, not only do we need it to go through those tough times, we actually need it as that fuel, that energy to keep us showing up in people's life because we will burn out. 
Man, I don't even know where I am in my notes. I said that, said that. <laughs> said that at the wrong time. <laughs> Stop laughing at me, Aaron. <laughs> Here's what ministry does. Out of compassion, ordinary people caring for people's needs. Ministry is a bridge to the things that people need. Everyone needs certain things to flourish, okay? So your ministry might be a bridge to a home. Your ministry might be a bridge to items that people need to rebuild their life right now. Your ministry might be a bridge for hope as they hear that they are, uh, that someone else is with them. It might be a bridge to the relationship with God that every person needs. It might be the bridge to a new friendship, to this community. All good things, right? Ministry is a bridge that connects people to the things that they need, the things that God wants for them. And let me illustrate the importance of building bridges this way. And I'll go back to the story I started with. So that flood in 1894, I told you that all the bridges in town were, towns were destroyed, right? And so the city of Boulder is literally cut in half, and it was just, it was really, really hard for the community to stay connected, even though, I mean, it's just a few hundred feet across the creek. It took six months for the first bridge to be rebuilt. It was on 12th Street. It took another three months for the second bridge to be built on 6th Street. But what do you think happened when the, one of the bridges opened up? The city had struggled for six months to rebuild, but as soon as the bridge opened up, they were able to do more work, flourish more, build more, rebuild more in the, pre, in the next three months than they were the previous six because it was a connection that was needed. When you do ministry, when you care for others, it doesn't matter how small it is, you are connecting them to the things of God that God wants for them. And when you do it in Jesus' name, you're giving them the potential to connect that to Jesus, that your love for them is an expression of God's love for them. And God wants you to be that kind of bridge in different people's life and transform those dark moments. And so I know I'm reminding many of you of something you've heard of heard in churches over and over again. But I also know that when it's been a hard week or months, years, it can be easy just to try to survive the week, right? I'm asking you to make room in your life to let God use you, especially right now. And I can tell you, God will do amazing things. One of the last details I want to share in the passage, worship team comes out, and I would not do it passage, or this passage justice if I didn't talk about the importance of God's authority and power. But I passed over Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, on purpose so I can make this point here. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority. Another word you can use here is he gave them spiritual power to drive out impure spirits and heal, heal every disease and sickness. I can promise you, and this is risky for a preacher to say because you can go pull up the video later on and say you were wrong, Brian, and I can't deny it. But I can promise you, miraculous things have already been done following the fire and will be done. I can promise you that. And I'm gonna love telling you some of those stories in the months to come. These aren't just natural things that we do. God wants to share his supernatural power 
and authority over broken things, authority over broken things, evil things, sick things. He wants to share that with us so that, this is what it means. It's not just that we're doing things to care for others, which is beautiful. Whenever it's done anywhere in the world, I think God is behind it. But when his power is joined with your generosity, breakthrough takes place. That's where renewal happens. That's where the type of redemption occurs that someone looks back at this horrible time and says, it was so hard and I wouldn't wish it upon anyone else, but I'm grateful that it happened because look what God did. That's what spiritual power and authority does with our simple acts of kindness. It breaks through and all heaven breaks loose. Hesitate to say this, but I will give us a little vision here. Anytime, every time a revival has broken out in our country, it's right after moments like the one we're living in. Every time. So I don't know if that's going to happen. But what I do know is that God loves people who are suffering. God loves us. He wants to resource us, care for us, help us if we're the ones that are suffering. And he wants to use us. And he doesn't want to just use us in a natural way. He wants to use us in a supernatural way to do the things that we look at and say, I have no explanation of what just happened, but God showed up. That's what people need. That's what really smart people that outthink God need. They need smoked by God, by his power. So you are being sent out with authority and power to do what Jesus does. And he will put the pieces together and he will use Every good deed, Paul tells us that. All right, I'm actually at the end of my notes. That means it's time to pray. Let's bow our heads and go to the quiet place of prayer. And I want to start by praying for our community. And then I'll pray for us. Father God, it's a pleasure to get to lead this church right now as we lift up our community. And there are, um, there are many people who are suffering, struggling, tired, working hard to build back their lives, displaced for years, some for a few months. There are others that have just watched from a distance and perhaps feel guilty, just tired of bad news. Their spirits are tired. They're more anxious than they've ever been. They feel more isolated than they ever have. Father, we lift them up. We pray, God, that you would work in creative ways to provide long-term housing for the families that want to stay in our community. We ask that there would be a home for every one of those families that doesn't want to have to leave. We pray that you would bless our leaders and our politicians with wisdom and creativity so that they might move things quickly to help care for people. We pray that you'd give people wisdom as they navigate the difficult process of working with their insurance companies and figuring out what choices to make and how to build their life and what to do in the meantime. We pray you'd give them wisdom. If they need a friend to help carry that burden with them, I pray you'd give them too. We pray for the kids and the young people in our community who have just gone through so much. And they're worried and they're afraid and they're sad. Lord, we pray that they would find hope in their struggle. I pray that there'd be loving adults who nurture them, that see them, protect them. 
pray those kids would find strength in you. Father God, we yeah, use the Christian students in this community to love their, love their, te- their classmates, their teammates. Empower them, use them in amazing ways. Father God, we pray for those who are just struggling mentally and in their spirit, they're downcast and they don't know if they can make it another day. We know that that's increasing and people are continuing to harm themselves. We pray that there would, never, there would not be another life lost because of that. I pray that you would give us your eyes, that every one of those people would be seen. They would be loved, they would be cared for. I pray you'd protect them from Satan who wishes to harm them with those thoughts. We pray that in Jesus' name. Father God, we pray for the spiritual and the physical and the mental renewal of our city. And lastly, Father, I do pray for my friends here at Cornerstone. I thank you for who they are. Thank you for all their unique stories and experience and training and gifts. Father, I pray they'd hear the simple words of Jesus, come to me so that I might send you out. Fill them with compassion. Help them overcome those reasons why not to act. And then Lord, give them the wisdom, the power and the authority and the love to care. And so Lord, use your church, use us, use our families that your renewal might come. Thank you that we can be together and be reminded of the simple words of Jesus. I pray that we would live them out. We pray this in your name, amen. Let's stand together.